Okay, uh, Todd says I live in the local area, but I don't sound like a local, right? Okay, don't call me English, because I'm Australian. So let me give you an Aussie greeting and say g'day. G'day. All right, so I'm going to race through a subject tonight. I'm going to make a big statement right off the bat. And the issue I'm talking about tonight, I believe, is the issue of all issues for every single man, woman and child on this earth. And it's the issue about where did we come from, okay? And as Todd mentioned, there are only really two views. You covered it last week of how you, I, how the universe came to be. Either it evolved, which is kind of the view that everything made itself over billions of years, or there's a creator. And that's a hard concept to grasp because of the way we kind of tend to think about God. How, how could a being or a man, you know, make everything? Well, we have to understand God is not like us. He is unique, and he actually doesn't even exist in our space and time. So let me just go through this tonight very quickly, and I'm going to deal with some of the science, and when I mention that word, that's not a cue to go to sleep, all right? We're not, not going to be in school, but I hopefully uh, will show you stuff that is interesting, okay? Um, stuff that you've all heard about uh, under the name of science. Now, the first thing... Uh, you, is Todd mentioned our website, creation.com. It's pretty hard to remember, isn't it? But that website, ladies and gentlemen, has got over 35 years' worth of creation information. And I know from the hundreds of churches that myself and my colleagues do every year that people have questions. And what we try to do is to provide answers to those questions. We call ourselves an information ministry. You know, as a ministry, to the best of my knowledge, we employ more scientists than any Christian ministry in the world. And yet what we do is talk to folks just like yourself, teenagers, mums and dads all over the world. We've got seven offices. Why am I saying that? Not to boast, but to make a point. To believe in creation is not unscientific. I stand before you tonight as a former evolutionist. That's what I used to believe. Every one of my scientific colleagues believed in evolution. They got their PhDs and their degrees in exactly the same universities as their evolutionary counterparts. And one of the reasons they believed in evolution is because generally that's all we ever get taught. So just a bit on that website, up on the right-hand side there's a search engine. You can type in questions like, who did Cain marry? Or, you know, what about carbon-14 dating? What about dinosaurs? They're commonly asked questions. There's over 9,500 articles uh, on that site. Outside, on the table there, you'll see some sign-up sheets for a free email news called Infobytes. We send it out about every two weeks, and we answer claims that are in the media. Like this article I wrote about the earthquake in Haiti a few years ago. People say, well, you know, if God's a creator, if he's in control, why does he allow these things to happen? The answer, even to that, is in the book of Genesis, because that tells us right at the beginning we lived in a good world gone bad. We actually live in a cursed and fallen world. And the fact we see things going on that are wrong and bad and cause us to question should tell us that something's actually wrong with the world. It's wrong with creation. And what did God do about it? Well, he actually sent Jesus. That's what he did about it. Because we are helpless sinners. We're all trapped on this mud ball spinning in space and there's nothing you and I can do to save ourselves. There's only one thing we can do 
to get ourselves off this mud ball and that's to profess faith in God himself who came in the flesh and revealed himself to us. So he did do something about it. So if you want to sign up for that, uh, it's free. You can always unsubscribe. Uh, there's some sheets out there. You talked about worldviews, I believe. These two trees here represent the two major worldviews in this country. I like to talk about trees and their fruit because the Lord Jesus spoke about trees and their fruit, so I think that was a good example to follow. But just have a look at the slides. On the left there, you'll see this tree called humanism. That's an interesting word. You may have heard it before. Humanism simply means man decides truth for himself. Human beings are the ultimate authority. You can make up your own rules about life. That's what people believe. Now, why do they believe that? Notice the soil that tree is planted in? Evolution. Evolution is a concept that was originally designed, it's been around long before Darwin, but he popularized it, to try to explain the world and the universe, how it came to be without God. In fact, in Darwin's day, most scientists all believed in creation. The founding fathers of science, you may have heard of Isaac Newton and Faraday and Kepler and Madame Curie and Pasteur, they all were Bible-believing creationists, the great founding fathers of science. So notice the tree and the fruit that it's producing. Have a look at some of those problems there, like racism or abortion and, and euthanasia and, you know, should we use uh, babies and get their stem cells and kill them so we can keep other people up? These are all difficult questions to answer. But man actually decides whether it's right or wrong or not because he thinks the ultimate he's the ultimate authority. Man decides truth for himself. Look at the tree on the other side, the tree of Christianity. See, as a Christian, all the knowledge I have about the nature of God, why I need to be saved, the state of the world, comes from the Bible. That's where we get our knowledge about. So I profess as a Christian that God's word is truth. That's the good soil that's planted in. And if God's word is truth, and if I believe that, Okay, if I subscribe to that as my worldview, I should produce fruit in accordance with that worldview. I should love my neighbor as myself because that was a command of Christ, the creator. When he came down and sacrificed himself, he displayed God's love to us, for example. All right? We'll exhibit mercy to one another. Why? Because we're made in the image of God. We're not evolved animals, ultimately. That's the big issue. So you can see these true two worldviews and what is actually at the root of them. Most people believe in evolution, ladies and gentlemen, because that's all you've ever been taught. It's not because creation is unscientific. I believe it is. It's actually logically defensible. Hopefully you'll see that tonight. But in this country, in my home country of Australia, any of the Western countries, evolution is taught in our public schools to the exclusion of everything else on the idea that, you know, creation is religious and evolution is about science. And I'm going to deal with that and show you that's not the case as we go along. See, the non-Christian worldview, and a worldview here is like a set of glasses or a filter or a framework through which you interpret all reality. You interpret your world through a worldview. And this worldview here, I've pictured it like a telescope. And that evolutionary worldview says death, suffering over millions of years, that led to mankind, and mankind is the pinnacle. He's the top of the evolutionary tree. But see, notice that view, and view there involves lots of death. Evolution says death is a good thing because over millions of years, the weak got culled out, dispensed with, so the strongest could survive. 
Okay, now, everybody here, once you reach the age of understanding, you've already developed a worldview for yourself. You're probably sitting there thinking, no, I haven't, but actually, yes, you have. <laughs> and your worldview, I've learnt, is mainly derived, it mainly comes from one major point, one huge factor, and that's the belief about where you came from. Let me explain it. See, for example, if you, as, you know, didn't believe in God and you say, well, hey, I believe in evolution, therefore the Bible's wrong from the very first book. Well, if evolution's true, you know what? There's no meaning and purpose to your life. You're just a giant cosmic accident. As one scientist said, we're just evolved pond scum. By the way, what you believe about where you came from will also determine what happens to you when you die. Because guess what? If we've come from nothing, we're just going to go to nothing. But if the Bible's true, if God is creator... Actually, we were created with meaning and purpose. God has a plan for each and every one of us. And guess what? what the decisions you make in this life will affect where you spend eternity to either be in a restored heavens and earth with God, all right, or in that other place we often don't like to talk about, where the non-believers go. They're real facts. They're real issues. You know, we talk about those uh, three big problems in the world. Have you ever heard about those? Or the three big questions, rather, you know, where did I come from? Why am I here? Where am I going to? You ever heard of those before? Well, think about this. Number two and number three, right? Why am I here and where am I going to are determined by what you believe about number one. Can you start to see why I said this is an issue that affects everybody? What you believe about where you came from affects your whole view on life and how you might treat your fellow man, for example. I want to show you some quotes. These are, you might not recognize these names, but these are some of the world's leading evolutionists, some of the scientists, the, at the top there, Bertrand Russell. He was a great British philosopher. Look what he said. He said, we're just a curious accident in a backwater. Peter Atkins, he's an evolutionary professor from Oxford University in, uh, in England. He said, we're just a bit of slime on the planet. Stephen Jay Gould, he was a paleontologist from Harvard University. He said, we're just a fortuitous cosmic afterthought, a tiny little twig on the enormously arborescent bush of life. And the last guy there, Richard Dawkins, he's probably quoted more in our colleges today than any other evolutionist. He's the high priest of evolution. He says, we live in a universe which has no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Man, isn't that a cheerful message? Eh? I mean, you guys came along to be cheered up tonight. All right? I mean... To be honest, if people really believe that, why would you even bother getting out of bed in the morning, right? But that's the logical extension of evolution. There is no meaning and purpose to our life. You live, you die, that's it. Well, let's light it up a little bit. Here's some students, and one says to the other, you seem a bit down. That science class of yours went for ages. What happened? Ah, uh, teacher says we're nothing special. We came from pond scum. We're just evolved apes. What are they teaching in your next class? Self-esteem. <laughs> There's a saying that says, many a true words spoken in jest. But you see my point? So what are we going to do? Because people think that science, that word science is authoritative and, and, you know, evolution is about science and we've got to fit that idea of evolution and millions of years into the Bible somewhere. And you've probably all seen pictures like this. This is an icon of evolution. It's called the geologic column. And the way that it works, all those... All those uh, names there, those eras or epochs, are all based upon rock layers, big banks of strata we can see in the earth. And in those banks of strata, we find fossils, creatures that were once living and are now dead. They're turned to stone. And so they believe that over millions of years, those rock layers have captured these organisms 
and that gives us a record of biological evolution on the earth. So millions of years and fossils. Uh, they're the two keys that evolution relies upon. But see, when I use that word science tonight, I wonder what the word science conveyed in your mind. Because I think when I use the word science, most of you are thinking about, you know, technology, right? That builds those nice, you know, uh, tablets you have or can send men to the moon or build laptop computers. See, that's when you can do experiments and you can see the results and you can test out your ideas and, and over time you build upon the former and that's what gives us technology. And we call that operational science or experimental science, but that's not the same type of science that people use when they try to determine what happened in the past. That's called historical science or origin science. Let me have a closer look at this. Operational science deals with experiments you can do in the present. You can repeat those experiments and you can observe the results. So if I wanted to test the theory of gravity here tonight, right, I could climb up on the church roof, take a nice running dive off the side, right, I could do it in the present, because I wouldn't be around to repeat it, but uh, you folks could observe the results, right? Yeah, gravity really works. But see, evolution, ladies and gentlemen, is supposed to have occurred in the past, one time, and do we see evolution happening today? Now, some of you have just thought, hang on, what about natural selection? Hold on, I'm going to deal with that. So let's look at this. What about fossils? Fossils are supposed to be evidence for millions of years, slow, gradual fossilization. Now, I was in a church in South Africa some years ago, and a man came up to me and he said, you know, you creationists, he said, you know, you believe that the earth's only thousands of years old. He said, but we have fossils that take millions of years to form. He says, therefore, it just blows your idea right out of the water. He was trying to claim it was unscientific. So I said to him, I said, well, I'm interested in fossils. I said, are you interested in fossils? I said, uh, could you give me a name of a fossil that you're, you know, you've got a problem with? He couldn't give me a name of a fossil. I wasn't trying to be smart. What I was trying to point out is that he was basing his whole eternal destiny on something he actually didn't know much about. Because, see, most people have a big picture idea of evolution, but when you scratch underneath the surface, they actually don't know much about it. And I showed him that picture there. And you can see what's really neat about it. It's a fossilised ichthyosaur. Uh, we believe it's an extinct marine reptile. But can you see what's really neat about it? There's the baby coming out of the birth canal. Now, think about this. If fossils take millions of years to form, was that ichthyosaur giving birth over millions of years while it was slowly being fossilized? Every picture tells a story. No, something rapid and quick had to happen to that creature. And I could show you hundreds of pictures of fossilization. Now, when I went to school, this is a picture from my grade 11 biological uh, science textbook from Australia. And this is how they told me how fossils are formed. If you look at the three panels there on the left-hand side, you can see old... Freddie fish swimming along and he sinks to the ocean floor and he dies. And now notice on the right, while he's lying on the ocean floor, look at the high mountains at the top. They've disappeared. So what that's suggesting is, you know, slow, gradual processes. A little bit of mud, a little bit of sediment, gradually washes out, buries the fish, turns it into a fossil. And then that arrow, that's how that geologic column builds up over millions and billions of years, for example. But folks, look at that. How do you get a fossil like that using that process? <laughs> See, what you need, here's old Freddy fish swimming along, you need a lot of mud and a lot of water in a short amount of time. You can bury the fish quickly on those layers and before long you can get yourself a rapid fossil. 
And you might be thinking, hang on, I, yeah, things can be buried quickly, but the technical term for fossilization is called permineralization. You know, that's where the organic material is slowly replaced and turned to stone over millions of years. Really? Well, there's a picture of a rapid fossil. That was a soft felt miner's hat buried in a volcanic explosion in New Zealand. 20 years after the volcanic explosion, they unearthed the cabin that it was buried in and it turned into a piece of solid rock. I suppose you could say it evolved into a hard hat or something like that, right? But uh, what about this one? Okay, have a look. This was a rock on a beach and somebody turned it in over and inside the rock was a toy car. So fossils can form quickly under the right conditions. Rocks can form quickly under the right conditions. You just need the right set of cementing conditions to get these things occurring rapidly. You see, one of the reasons we're confused, as I said, most people are only ever taught one point of view. You never get to hear the information for creation. That's why our ministry exists, to help people with information. But ladies and gentlemen, here's the first key point. There's not more evidence for evolution than there is creation. Creationists and evolutionists, we have the same facts. We have the same rocks, we have the same fossils, we have the same universe to discover but we come to differing conclusions about the facts because our starting assumptions, our worldviews, or our beliefs play a part in interpreting the facts. I can look at a fossil and I can fit it within the creation model. And an evolutionist will look at it and fit it within his evolutionary model. There's nothing really about those facts on their own without a, an interpretive filter or framework that will tell you how old they are, for example. And the whole concept of millions of years doesn't come from things like radiometric dating. In fact, the idea of millions of years was believed long before radiometric dating was invented. It came from an interpretation of the world's geology, all the rock layers. And I'm going to show you an example here about the Grand Canyon. I'm sure a few of you have been down there, right? See all those coloured bands in the rock wall? They're called strata. And in the strata are very fine layers called sedimentary layers. And evolutionary geologists believe that each thin layer is laid down by water or wind, moving dust, and each layer takes about a year to form. And so when they see millions of layers in the canyon, they go, wow, look, we're looking at millions of years of Earth's history. Now, who's heard stories like this, that the Colorado River wound its way through the canyon over tens of millions of years? Just do the little Aussie a favor here tonight. Put your hand up if you've heard stories like that. Okay, just about everybody. See my point? Okay, well, if you've ever read creationist literature before, you know we love to use these events in Mount St. Helens up in Washington State. In 1980, Mount St. Helens exploded. It's one of the most well-documented catastrophic events in modern history. Why? Because the mountain was actually swelling and they knew it was going to blow. And when it did, it didn't blow its top, it blew its side. Look at that. One-third of the volcano erupted and blew lumps of rock as big as a city block over six miles from the blast site. And yet this guy's just a baby when we consider some of the geologic events in Earth's history. But what was interesting is it laid down banks of strata, like those wide bands we saw in the Grand Canyon. And can see that middle bank there? 22 feet of those very, very fine laminations. Remember I told you they believe about one per year? There are thousands of them in that 22-foot bank of strata. Did it take thousands of years for them to lay down? No, in fact, they were laid down precisely on June 12, 1980, in just three hours. 
as a result of the catastrophic events of Mount St. Helens. And you can see the dates for the other banks of strata there. When you go back to Mount St. Helens today, there's canyons all over the place. Now again, when you just look at a picture like that, I want to show how we've all been given a, a set of glasses to interpret things. See, I believe when we look at that picture and we see the little river running through it, which is called the North Fork of the Toodle River, we've all been taught to interpret that as that little river must have ebbed and flowed over a long period of time and gradually eroded the canyon. That canyon is called Engineer's Canyon. You know why? Because engineers had to divert, divert water from nearby Spirit Lake that had overfilled with water from the volcanic explosion. They diverted it into a little gully and eroded that canyon in just eight months. By the way, I don't think all the material was soft and washed away. The, the floor of the canyon is solid basalt. That's hard volcanic rock. And you can see where it's been scoured by fast-flowing mud and water. And uh, if you can look over here, I would you to do both sides up in that top left-hand corner, that little side canyon up there. See it? That's called Little Grand Canyon. That's a 140th scale of the Big Grand Canyon. And, you know, I'd love to tell you that one took a, two month, a few months to form. It actually was formed in less than 24 hours as a result of the catastrophic events of Mount St. Helens. So, I started talking about worldviews. So think about the Grand Canyon again. How do we know how the Grand Canyon was formed? You know what? No one knows how the Grand Canyon was formed. When we go to the Grand Canyon today, we see facts in the present, layers in the rock, a river running through, and based upon your belief system, you either say slow, gradual processes over millions of years, or you say, man, Noah's flood must have really ripped through here in a hurry. <laughs> because guess what? When I look at the Bible's history as an interpretive lens, it tells me there was a global catastrophe a few thousand years ago. The earth was covered with water. What geologic work do you think a lot of water and a lot of mud and a lot of sediment covering the earth could do in a short amount of time? When I look around the world now, I see thousands and thousands of feet of sedimentary layers all over the world, and guess what those layers have in them? Fossils, things that were once living and have been buried, and in cases like I showed with the ichthyosaur, evidence of them being buried very, very quickly. See, when you go on to further education, some of you do that, you're going to be told, remember the key words, here's evidence for evolution. No, we have the same facts, we interpret facts differently and it becomes evidence for our cause. Here's another example, what about this idea of ape men? This newspaper clipping, this guy here is called Boxgrove Man and he was described as one of the most important finds in the history of human evolution. So that's a big claim, isn't it? And the newspaper clipping up there says, Europe's oldest known man lived 500,000 years ago, eight elephant was tall and robust. So here's the question to ask when you hear claims like that. What's the evidence? Well, the evidence, everything, oops, sorry, is what they're holding in their hands, that piece of shin bone, that's it. How do you know how tall he was, whether he'd a elephant, all right, whether he was tall and robust from looking at a piece of shin bone? You can't. That picture is an interpretation based upon their belief system. And again, ladies and gentlemen, please don't think I'm here to disparage evolutionists. I'm not, because I used to be one. It's exactly how I used to think because I'd been given the set of glasses. I'd never been allowed to consider the alternative. There's always two ways, like I showed you with those two trees, of looking at our world. And the last bit of science I want to talk to you about is natural selection, because, you know, I've been doing this for over 25 years, and I know in particular young people, when they get to college, they're told by their lecturers, 
evolution is true, we can see creatures change over time. You know, mutations and all this type of stuff. But guess what? Creatures changing fits within the creation model. Because in the Bible, God says he created distinct kinds of creatures according to their kinds. A horse kind, a dog kind, a people kind. And modern genetics, if anything, I think is falsifying evolution more than anything else today. Darwin knew nothing about the complexity of the cell. And this is going to be cool. You listen to this. In, the, in the, any one of the trillions of cells in your body, and that's how many you have floating around right now, in the nucleus you've got something called the DNA molecule. You've all heard of that, right? But the DNA is just a really complex storage system. Okay? It can store so much data. Imagine if I could, say, get a pinhead's worth of DNA, enough DNA to fit in the head of a pin, and I typed out all the letters of information into books... I would have enough books to reach to the moon 240 times. That's how efficient it is at storing information. And it's a computer code that tells the cells what to build, whether you're going to be a frog or a fish, a human, what colour hair, eyes you're going to have, and so on and so forth. It's been described as the most complex information storage mechanism in the entire universe. So the point there, God could have loaded tonnes of information on there to enable creatures to change over time. But... There's a limit to the change. See, evolution says we've got to get from simple to complex. You want to turn microbes into microbiologists, you've got to add information. The simplest organism in the world is a bacterium that we've seen today. It has about one book's worth of information. In your DNA right now, in one cell, one strand of your DNA, you've got about a thousand books worth of information. So evolution has to find a mechanism that from a warm pond millions of years ago, the first chemicals got together to form the first amino acids, the first protein, the first cell, and all life evolved from that. And they say the mechanism is something called natural selection. Creatures change. So we're going to do a natural selection experiment for fur length in dog. dogs. Darwin thought dogs was great proof of evolution because we can breed different types of dogs, right? We can get short ones, fat ones, hairy ones, big ones, whatever we like through selective breeding. But I want you to imagine we start off with a parent kind of dog. And, we, and they're expressed here. Imagine they've got medium length fur. They're in the middle range. Why? Well, have a look in this inside. I've simplified it. But they've got a gene for short fur and a gene for long fur. So they've got all the information necessary to produce dogs with different lengths of fur. So when they get married, walk down the aisle and they have puppies, right? On the left here, they can produce dogs with short fur. Why is that? Well, notice... What happened is you get one set of instructions from each of your parents, so he inherited a gene for short fur from mum and a gene for short fur from dad. The ones in the middle, they're in the medium range, they've got the same information as the parent. Short fur gene from dad, long fur gene from mum, and maybe the other way around with the other guy, right? Long fur gene from dad, different combination, but still expressed in the medium range. And then you get that critter on the right. What happened there? Okay, well, she only inherited the set of long-furred instructions from each of her parents. So have a look. You've got variation within one generation. But guess what? It had to come from pre-existing information. Can you see that? Nothing new has been created. So now we've got a truckload of dogs, and in a cold environment, the ones with short fur and medium-length fur, they get culled out. Kind of nature wipes them out because they don't have a survival advantage, you only end up with a population of dogs with long fur now. They were adapted to their environment. Remember the first point? No new information created. Here's a second point. 
there's been a loss of information. Can anyone spot it? The genes for short fur and medium fur have been culled and removed, yet they've adapted and been and now suited to their environments. That's a very simple explanation. It all had to come from pre-existing information. It's the sign that there was a designer that put so much information into the DNA of every kind of creature that allows them to adapt and survive in a post-flood, post-fall world. That's natural selection in a nutshell. Nothing new is getting created. All it does is sort out pre-existing information. All life is based upon information. I could take a single cell out of any of the leaves at any of the trees there and I have encyclopedias worth of coded complex information. And let's face it, encyclopedias don't come about by chance. They're the result of a mind that composed code and language. Here's one of the answers to racism, by the way, based upon that idea. People say, well, what about races? What about skin colours? Actually, do you know what you and I, we all have the same skin colour? doesn't matter whether you're dark-skinned or light-skinned, we actually have the same skin colour. It's a skin pigment called melanin. By the way, some people might call me white. That piece of paper is white. Is my skin white? I'm actually light brown. Some of you are dark brown, some of you medium brown. In the same way I showed you the dogs, guess what? We now know all humanity must have originally come from a medium brown couple. Because when they're in the medium brown range, they possess all the genetic information able to produce lighter offspring or darker offspring in one generation. If you have lots of dark skin, like in my home country of Australia, lots of dark skin is a survival advantage in a hot climate. It's a natural sunscreen. So typically when we rediscovered Australia in the 1700s, we found Aboriginal people living there because white-skinned people like myself, well, we have the highest rates of skin cancer in the world, we don't pass our genes on to the next generation, we get culled out. In fact, Australia is such a hot place with the devastating sun, it's actually illegal to send a child to school without a hat in Australia. How's that? So we have to deal with that. All right, so look, I could answer questions. By the way, here's the parents... Notice what they are, medium brown skin, medium brown hair, medium brown eyes, a skin pigment called melanin. Guess what? 70% of the world's population today has medium brown skin, medium brown hair, medium brown eyes. Ladies and gentlemen, there's your answer to racism. God made. The Bible says in the book of Acts, he, he made all nations of men from one man, from one blood. You know what? Modern science caught up with what the Bible has said all along. Isn't that interesting? Dinosaurs, we're all told they lived millions of years ago. Have a look at this. This is soft tissue reported in a secular science magazine. Ligament, blood cells, flexible and resilient when stretched, returned to its original shape. Yet the last dinosaur, according to evolutionists, lived 65 million years ago. How could unfossilized tissue last for 65 million years? Quite simply, it can't. And look, there are all sorts of ideas people have to try to fit, you know, the idea of millions of years of evolution in Scripture. There are all these complex terms like gap theory, day-age theory, and you might hear some of those. But here's the problem with all of them. Here's Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Right? Remember, God created a perfect world. So here they are on day six of creation. God looks down, resting, and he says he saw all that he had made, and it was very good. By the way, very good doesn't sound spectacular because we overuse words today. I mean, in the modern language we say, and God said it was awesome or something like that. But when the creator of the universe says something's very good, you can believe it was awesome, right? It was perfect. Here's the problem. 
Do you remember I showed you that geologic column? If, that, if the evolutionary interpretation of that geologic column is millions of years of death and pain and suffering over millions of years, Adam and Eve would have been standing on a fossil graveyard of death. And God looks down and says, it's very good. There's a huge problem there. You know, in the last few years, I've lost my beautiful big sister to cancer and my dad, both of them. And I can tell you, I'm not reconciled with death. If I could be frank with you, death stinks. Our loved ones die, they get cancers. It should be a reminder to us that something's wrong. It wasn't the way that God created. The fact is, we're all going to die with it sooner or later. We don't know by what means. But that geologic column... You know what that is? That's a record of order of burial from Noah's flood. Same evidence, different interpretation. That's the evidence we see around us. And by the way, there was no death and bloodshed before Adam. The New Testament says that. Paul writes in Romans, sin and death entered the world through one man, talking about Adam, okay, because all sinned. Jesus is called the last Adam, because there was a real physical, historical first Adam. He came to overturn the works of the first Adam. So just recapping, evolution, as I said, that, death's a good thing. What's wrong with death? Get used to it. But the Bible says it was our actions that brought death into the world. The last enemy to be destroyed, the Apostle Paul wrote. Death is an enemy. See, here's the answer to that death and suffering question. God created a perfect world. He put us in it. All he wanted to do was have fellowship and he gave us a few commands, true, but for our benefit. Why? Because when we disobeyed them, guess what? We messed it up. And even though we messed up God's creation, we need to remember that belongs to him, even though we messed it up and we're suffering the consequences of our own sin, he sends a rescue mission from heaven to pay the penalty that was due you and I for messing it up. And people want to know if God's a God of love. Actually, that's an incredible story of love because we get the grace and mercy we actually don't deserve. See, sin, and the first entrance of sin was back in the Garden of Eden, but sin is rebellion from God. It's actually living your life as if God doesn't exist. And sadly, this country and my home country of Australia, most people live their life as if God doesn't exist. That's what the first man and woman did. They turned their back on their creator. That's the problem. So think about this. If Genesis is not real literal history with a literal good creation, with a literal Adam and Eve, and if sin did not literally enter the world through their actions, then you and I don't literally need to be saved from anything. The very reason we need a saviour is because it all went wrong in the beginning. God himself came down. And you know why that's significant? Think about this. If we as Christians believe that there's going to be a heaven, a new heavens and a new earth, well, it shouldn't be a problem. God can create that because he did it once before. And it tells us in the book of Revelation, the last two chapters there, God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. There shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall be any more pain, for the former things have passed away. And have a look there, talking about the new Jerusalem. There's that tree of life again. Remember that one in the Garden of Eden? It's back there again. That's what we mean by a restoration. God's going to have his way in the end. He's going to restore it back to the way it was in the beginning. And have a look. There's no more curse. Now, death, in a way, I want you to think about this. Why did God bring death? It's actually a blessing. Because Adam and Eve would have lived forever. 
But when God actually brought death into the world as a result of their sin, he did so because otherwise they would have been eternally separated from God. You and I would have been eternally separated from God. That's a problem. So he made a way, even through death, how we can be reconciled back to our creator. Isn't that amazing? But you have to believe in the one whom God sent. You have to believe that he paid the price for our sin. All right. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have not left us void. That means without answers. But Lord, this world seeks at times to keep you out of the picture and it only gives us half the information. Sometimes we can call that a half-truth. And so, Lord, we need to have all the information so that we can make a fully informed decision. I just pray that we've just piqued some curiosity to help people understand the answers to these issues. And Lord, I just pray that you'd help make strong Bible-believing warriors out of people here tonight that would give a defense for their faith regardless of the opposition they have. This is such an important issue, Lord, and I just pray for everybody here in that regard, in Christ's name. Amen. Bless you guys. Thank you.